Hey, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, host of the show and your guide on this adventure into bird dogs and bird hunting and all things related. This week, we're going to take a deep dive into the makings of a magazine, specifically Upland Almanac. So stick around if you want to know a little bit of the history, a little bit of the motive, uh, the whole Megillah. We're going to cover all aspects of it. Tom Carney, the editor, and John Gosselin, the publisher, will both be joining me very soon here at the Upland Nation podcast. We'll learn why and how they pick stories and pictures, a little bit of economics, peek behind the curtain, kind of like the Wizard of Oz. But we'll also take your recommendations on what should be in your truck next season, besides your dog, of course. And then is there such a thing as a public access bobwhite quail? We'll explore a couple spots and dog care gear that you love. It's all coming up on the Upland Nation podcast. Well, I'm getting an earlier start than I promised on my shooting improvement plan. Been out a couple times learning, relearning that instinctive or Churchill style shooting. And I'm pretty happy with it so far. Uh, I'll keep you posted as we get into the more formal aspects. I promised to shoot 100 rounds a week starting Memorial Day and through Labor Day. May have to shorten that up a little bit because Labor Day is the first weekend of sharptail season in Montana. So uh, maybe I'll be applying what I've learned. How about yourself? Have you um, looked ahead that far? I know some of you are because you're talking to me about that sort of thing. In fact, I have a meeting later this week with a buddy to give him some sharp tail advice in Montana, and hopefully I'll get a little from him at the same time. Whether it's South Dakota or anywhere else, are you making a big trip? I'm going to ask more about that kind of thing in the Upland Nation Insights newsletter in the next few weeks. What's your training regimen like these days? I am working pretty hard with Flick on one thing in particular, and that is steady to fall after a covey rise. Kind of hard to simulate, but we're working on it. We've got some great bird launchers, and I'm learning how to use them strategically, and plenty of pigeons. Now the key is, can I simulate a dead bird without having to kill a bird i don't have that many and unfortunately i have fewer by the week when the cooper's hawk passes through town so um if you're a pigeon owner you know of what i speak when it comes to that sort of thing walked into the loft this morning and found one dead bird but no hawk evidence they didn't get into the loft but um trying to figure that one out we'll see uh I guess natural causes. I guess it happens. Hmm. Anyway, we're talking about all sorts of things on the Facebook page, both the Upland Nation and the Wing Shooting USA Facebook page. And uh, that's where we're going to start this week. I asked the question, you know, like the old television commercial, don't leave home without it. For them, it was American Express cards. For us, it's that other stuff that we need to take when we're hunting. Now's when we're starting to acquire it all. In fact, I just fin finally ordered, I've threatened to have one of these for years. I always carry a little hand axe. I threatened to bring a chainsaw with me, and I'll tell you that story down the road somewhere. But I'm finally getting one of those foldable um, uh, saws a good good sized one and to leave that in the truck all the time but among other things here are the things that you folks thought were important enough to think about packing if nothing else dave david DeSmither says a first aid kit uh, yes he'd better start bringing that i think that's the new year's resolution he's alluding to there um a flexible fold-up cleaning rod that fits in your pocket, says Dave Brebner. You haven't lived till you try to clean six inches of mud out of the end of your barrel with a twig. Yeah, uh, a will willow switch will do the job if you're in a riparian zone. But yeah, I know how you feel there, David. Andrea Christina Liker says, a bandana? Absolutely. Hers has served as a scarf, face mask, dog bandage, hair tie, gun cleaner, towel, tissue, rope, flag, 
She carries one on every outing, and so do I. In fact, uh, my bit of advice there, um, having been in the rodeo business for a while, is go to a Western store and get a real silk bandana. It'll cost you more, but it'll be way bigger, and it'll have way more uses. Uh, Stephen Foster says, uh, don't leave home without a wife. Okay, that works once in a while. Mine doesn't really like that kind of stuff, but she'll go once a year with us just so that she can see Flick work. She is as dazzled by great dog work as any of us, and so um, thank you for going along, honey. Uh, ben Kerr says a brush uh, with kind of sticky-outy bristles. He's shown me a picture here, and it's it's small, easy to carry. It works great if you have a dog with a beard and very well for a long-haired dog. It never leaves my game vest. Okay, and there it is. George Cummins. George, great to hear from you again. Hope all is well out there. George says, forget all that other stuff. Bring a positive attitude. Instead of bitching about how the numbers are down or it's too windy, be thankful for the wide open spaces that we have to enjoy with our dogs. George couldn't have said it better. The Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by Sage and Breaker Gun Care products crafted at the highest caliber. Bring some of those along when you're packing up, whether it's cleaning gear of all sorts, uh, lubrication gear of all sorts, from their new gun grease to their CLP. They're both in my truck vault, and I use them every time I pull out a shotgun. Learn more about them at sageandbreaker.com. And if you're looking for gear that's new to you, but maybe a little bit more affordable because it was somebody else's first, and they used it very seldom. Then go to UplandNationDeals.com. Just got two orders today for some stuff that was barely put on the site 24 hours ago. Uh, bird launcher and a GPS collar both sold in less than a day. So if you're selling stuff or you're thinking about selling stuff, consider listing it at UplandNationDeals.com as well. All the details right there. So if you're looking to buy or sell pro-level gear, and if you're especially looking to sell it, well, we've got a market that nobody else has nationwide and massive, massive numbers of people. It's all at UplandNationDeals.com. And there we go. That's a good signal to start. These guys, this is going to be like the Marx Brothers, I'm afraid. We're going to take a deep dive into one of the magazines that we all know and love, Upland Almanac Magazine. And uh, I don't remember which one of those guys has the diesel horn in the background, but joining me on the line from various places, John Gosselin, uh, the founder, and Tom Carney, the editor. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much, Scott. Thanks, Scott. And that was John, and that was Tom in that order. And if you have stereo speakers, Tom is on the right, and John is on the left <laughs> as you're facing your your computer. Um, but in the meanwhile, uh, I, I should actually be more deferential because uh, they send me money once in a while for writing for Upland Almanac, and I'm grateful for that. And I hope you are all grateful for the hard work both these guys put in. John Gosselin, why don't you bring us up to speed? Give us a little bit of the history of this magazine and, you know, how it got started and, and where we are today. Well, Scott, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people have asked me that question over the years. What made you do this? And I tell them it was a moment of weakness, really. Um, <laughs> I had been... Uh, securely, gainfully employed by other people, and, uh, well, you know how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes it just isn't enough, and um, very frustrated with the corporate world and all uh, nepotism and all this stuff. So I uh, decided just to break away and do something that was for me. And that was when we got started. And by the way, it, the magazine originally started out as the Grouse Point Almanac, because at the time, everyone in the staff that was involved were rough grouse hunters from the Northeast. And so we decided we'd do what we knew best with the idea in the, our back pockets, 
that it would it could eventually be expanded into the Upland Almanac, which it was three and a half years later. You know, I remember back in the good old old days, and and it had a you know a very uh, loyal cult like following. Um, how did they react when you when you altered the name and and became more inclusive? Uh, it was a mixed uh, reaction, Scott. Some were disappointed, but I would say that most we we certainly retained a very high per, uh, percentage of our subscribers. Um, most were glad that we were expanding because very few people really, when you get right down to it, hunt ruffed grouse only or woodcock only their entire lives. They wanted to get out to the Dakotas and hunt pheasants and everything. And uh, you know, we it was time to still remain focused but expand a bit at the same time. Tom, let's uh, let's get a little bit of your story, but before we do, I must vet you in public right now. Um, three key questions for you, Tom Carney, the editor at uh, Upland Almanac. First, flusher or pointer? Pointer. Twelve gauge or twenty gauge? Twenty. Over and under or side by side? <laughs> Over and under, because I can't hit anything with a side by side. And and I'm just the opposite. By the way. It, those were all trick questions. You would have passed no matter what based on the work you do. And thank you again. And I, I won't fawn anymore, I promise. How did you come into this whole story then, pardon the pun, at Upland Almanac? It, there's, a, there's, a, there's a straight line in, I think it was 1999, I had a book in the contest for the Outdoor Writers Association of America. And um, one of the judges was Matt Crawford. Matt was the editor at the time for the magazine. He liked what I wrote and wanted to know if I wanted to do the back page column, Tail Feathers. So I started that around 1990, I think it was. And then um, I had told John if you know if I ever if he ever had a chance for me to do any editing, I thought I'd like to do that. And um, um, I guess 2008, there was the opening. So I just kind of planted myself in the in the editor's chair, and I've been developing deep roots ever since. I, I'm wondering if that we would call that a uh, let's see, would we call that a coup d'état? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's wonderful to 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 talk with you both about you know to, you know the subject matter in particular but also just this whole in industry which i've been involved in for a long time as well john what when you started it and even today uh what is the goal of upland almanac magazine what are you trying to do how are you trying to serve people well i i think it probably fits most any business model um of course we want to grow uh, and we want to keep getting better. Uh, in terms of content, uh, the man on the other side of the microphone there, Mr. Tom Carney, is largely responsible for making the content better and better. I can honestly sit back now and look through all of these back issues, and I can't remember, I can't believe it's already been 24 years look through all of these back issues and I can say that each one has gotten better than the last. And uh, of course, then the growth part of it, uh, and I oversee that, is getting more subscribers. Uh, we have subscribers fall away, so you have to replace you know, uh, every subscriber that you lose, you have to replace them with two, otherwise, otherwise you're not growing. So. I oversee all of the uh, promotional side of things, the direct mail, the um, uh, email marketing, uh, social media marketing, which of course has become very, very significant these days. Tom, you've been at it for a while. You've been a, a content provider, if you will, um, <laughs> uh, oh, yes. of, of various sorts. I mean, have you seen the number, the quality of, uh, of stories change in any way in that period of time you've been an editor <laughs> i have but it's basically then because the people who have worked with me 
know what I want yeah. and want to deliver it. And the people who don't want to deliver it don't ask anymore. <laughs> well, that's that's one way to put it. Okay, so so of all of all the writers you work with, uh, besides me, <laughs> who, who are some of the pe people we should really be watching as great writers in this day and age? I'm not asking you to, to you know, uh, equivocate them with uh, Hemingway or even a, a Pat McManus or anybody else, but who are some of those great writers that you get to work with? You know, actually, I, I was able to use both Pat and Hemingway in our our uh, 799.2 department. That's the department oh, where yeah. I find story. You know, stories we might call we might call classic stories. They're uh, 799.2 for the older members of your uh, audience is the old Dewey Decimal System classification for um, um, hunting stories. Yeah. So that's what that's where that came from. So I have used those, but certainly your, your listeners will probably remember Tom Hugler. He writes occasionally for us, as does Jerry Dennis. Um, and then recently we were able to add Bob DeMott, who's who's a splendid, he, he, he's just a wonderful guy. He's He's um, he's a former professor at Ohio University, and he's a, a Steinbeck scholar. He was actually a good friend of of the writer Jim Harrison's. I guess he's done two essays so far. He's so he just joined us as a regular, you know, contributor for each issue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm a little bit unprepared here to mention anybody else. But basically, basically. If the, if their writing passes muster and gets in the magazine, you can bet that they're doing good stuff because that's the number one uh, uh, quality I'm looking for is good writing or or people who want to make their writing better. That's even better way of putting it. You know, that's that's a good way to put it. And I've worked with some editors over the years who are real good about that, and you're one of them, and I appreciate that. You know, you mentioned a few names that I want to reiterate because number one, they've been either on on my field and stream radio show in years past, or have been on this podcast. Jerry Dennis is one of those people that I kind of lost track of for a while. Jim Harrison, of course, um, those are two names that, uh, that a lot of people don't really, um, I guess consider within our genre per se, but they're just incredible authors and, um, shout out to both oh, yeah. of them. Yeah. John, uh, you you came to this world um, as a participant, uh, passionate participant. What you know? Tell me tell me about that aspect of your life and and how things are going in that world these days. <laughs> well, I I grew up. Uh, it goes all the way back to where I grew up in the little state of Rhode Island. Believe it or not, had some pretty good rough grouse and woodcock hunting in the days, and um, I was able to hunt pretty much out my back door and um, uh, worked my way up to a 20-gauge break open when I was about, oh, 14 years old. Then when I got to be 16 into my early 20s, let's just say my attention was diverted into <laughs> different areas. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I landed in Vermont where I eventually would spend 23 years of my adult life. And uh, that certainly being in that environment rekindled my interest in, uh, once again, ruffed grouse and woodcock because those were the only native um, upland birds that we had. And um, became active with the Ruffed Grouse Society and ran the Green Mountain chapter there in, uh, of the RGS for a number of years. And um, just uh, through a fluke of circumstances, I now live in Boise, Idaho. And now I'm hunting, well, some rough grouse, but also a different variety of birds and a larger variety of birds here as well. First roughy I ever shot was outside of Boise a long time ago. And here's a good chance to remind you, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. And uh, speaking of Upland... I'm Scott Linden. That's Tom Carney, 
And that's John Gosselin, and I'm pointing right and left as I say that because that's where you'll hear them. Uh, Tom, when we <laughs> when we were um, uh, when we last talked, I think I got the impression that you might have a new dog. Am I am I guessing right? Uh, no, I just have I have two mousy dogs. Oh, okay. So, you know what I, what I have is a, is a fenced-in yard and and frequent squirrel visitors. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and, <laughs> uh, I, and you know, there's nothing like the look of a bird dog that's figuring out that the squirrel uh, is up there in the tree. Is there? I mean, it's just so obvious, isn't it? Oh yeah, and these here the the squirrels they they come you know, tromping around through the yard and it's always funny to watch them run because when the dogs come out, they find the nearest tree and up they go. Yeah, they do. And But they're pretty dang bold and that's the thing that bothers me most. They'll just chitter and chatter and lecture at that dog knowing that the dog can't do anything about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Drives our girls nuts. Yes. Uh, we've got, uh, we're, uh, the, our bigger nemesis is the chipmunks. Oh. Uh. <laughs> oh, by the way, um, I just wanted to mention when you said flushers or pointers, I interpreted that question to mean which dogs do you own now? Oh, which do you prefer? Because I prefer whatever hunting dog I'm with, if I'm not with my own. There you go, and I'm the same way. And I I tell tell everybody pretty much that, and then I say, well, hunting with almost any dog is better than hunting without any dog. Um, oh, yes. Oh, it, guys, that's also diplomatic. It is, and you know when, when you're when you're out there talking to people who own them all, and then then there's the um the the occasional cattle dog or German shepherd that's carrying a bird back in a picture. So you gotta oh, be yeah. you gotta be diplomatic, don't you? Yes, I, I literally hunted grouse and woodcock with a man in Maine who had a pomeranian, <laughs> a pomeranian. That he uh, he trained to flush the dog would start going in little figure eights when it got birdie, and uh, I swear one of the grouse that it brought back was bigger than the dog. I, I'd be more <laughs> afraid of the golden eagles out in this country. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there goes my bird dog. Oh God! We, we, we live out in the country, but we, we're in a kind of a country subdivision, so uh, it's like Alaska. We only move out here so that people will leave us the hell alone. Uh, but every once in a while, at at the one stop sign, there will be the poster: "Lost cat, lost dog," and it's always a little dog or a cat. And I, I finally asked the biologist once, where are all these cats going? Are the coyotes getting them? He said, nope, it's the owls at night. The oh. owls are the biggest cat killers in the neighborhood. I'll be darned. So watch well, If you own a, a, you know, a pointing Pomeranian, then you ought to be careful at night. Well, all I know is there's an owl outside my window that likes to wake me up at about 3, 4 o'clock every morning. Yeah, and uh, I wish something would come and carry it away. <laughs> okay, let's not go down that path, or somebody from the Fish and Wildlife Service will be talking with us. Uh, natural, all natural, of course. Yes, all natural. Okay. So, um, so John, if you're out there, you said you're you're hunting a few ruffies, but you're hunting all sorts of other things as well. But Tom, I didn't get anything from you on that whole subject. What if you could? Knowing how hard you work, and I'm sure you tell John this every day, knowing how hard you work 24-7, 364, I'm going to give you Christmas off. Um, Thank you. Yeah. What uh, What would you hunt more of and how and where? Well, that's an excellent question because you'd like to hunt. Well, I live in Michigan, and I spend as much time as I can in northern Michigan during grouse and woodcock season. So theoretically, I get to hunt them as much as I as I want. If I had, if I could go someplace and and hunt more of, I'd go, I'd go probably to Oklahoma or Kansas with James Deach, our oh yeah, our ad rep, and hunt and hunt wild quail. Those, the, my previous experience had only been on on, uh, you know, at hunt clubs, and 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 I thought. First time I saw quail out there in Oklahoma with James, I thought this is going to be easy, and it's not. It's crazy. 
Oh, I know. We tried to make an episode of Wing Shooting USA, the TV show out there with James, and and we had a wonderful time. Of course, he's great company and a good good oh, yeah. friend. Uh, we were just there on the wrong day, but uh, <laughs> but enjoyed the heck out of it anyway. So yeah, uh, I don't I don't blame you. I'd go back out there as well. So uh, good for you. And uh, and and while I might have heard a couple barking in the background, what kind of dogs you got out there these days? I've got one Llewellyn setter, a, a seven-year-old Llewellyn. That's a form of English setter, or a strain of English setter named Lizzie. And then Abby is going to be 10 this year. She's an Irish red and white setter, which means she's mostly white. And she's got red ears, and they might have red. They call them islands or saddles, you know, going across their back. They're basically giant red spots. Yes. And that that's actually an, an older... Uh, strain of dogs than the typical Irish setters we see, but back in like the 17 or 1800s, when people started seeing the how beautiful the the red setters are, they started um, breeding more and more for those, and uh, the red and whites almost, you know, went by the wayside. You know, and, and you say almost by the wayside as if it was ancient history, but, uh, well, it was, but I, I guess the resurrection of the breed, and same with same for that other related breed, what they now call Irish red setters, um, that renaissance is only a couple decades old, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I, I can't speak to the red setters, but the Red and whites, I think right around the 20s, 1920s or 30s or 40s, there was an Irish priest who concentrated on bringing them back. And then there was, you know, a, a woman in his village or something. And and between the two of them, they brought the breed back. And now it's, uh, I think since 2008, it's been uh, an acceptable uh, breed for the um, AKC book. Yeah, it's a fascinating history, and I remember uh, way back w when I was first getting into the television world, uh, we hunted with, uh, I'm a little colorblind, so I'll apologize, Jeremy, but at the time, I thought it was a golden retriever, and it turned out to be a, uh, one of the very first Irish red setters coming out of a mm. field bred strain and that dog was a rock star so uh, mm. knock, knock on wood I got to do some of that yeah. um, you know this is a good chance for you guys to take a, uh, a break tend to those dogs um, maybe get another coffee or something because I'm going to go try and make a buck or two for us you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast we're talking with Tom Carney and John Gosselin of the Upland Almanac magazine don't go away we got lots more with those guys but we also will cover some dog care stuff in our handle it segment and then public bob whites yeah there's there's some places you can still go for that so hold on and you guys will be right back as i continue here at the upland nation podcast uh which is brought to you in part by uh dr tim's performance dog food dr tim and i are collaborating on a few videos that i hope that you will enjoy and will learn something from very soon if you'd like more information, go to drtims.com where you can learn a lot of that stuff in print before you watch it on video. You can also get 30% off your first order. Just use the code UPLANDNATION. Now, Dr. Tim is not only a veterinarian and a dog food developer, he is a sled dog racer, so he knows the importance of performance. And so do his colleagues. Multiple Iditarod winners are feeding Dr. Tim's performance formulas. And so is Flick. Boy, if only he could feed him. No, if he could feed himself, we'd be in big trouble. I mean, big trouble. They'll deliver it to your door, just like all those other guys. Dr. Tim's is one of those products that I have used for years and finally convinced that, uh, hey, maybe we should work together. So here we are. Learn more at DRTI ms.com as i said a few more things oh well I'll, I'll just call them dog care things the handle it segment is where i learn all those things the hard way so you don't have to this week uh, i asked a few folks on facebook uh, what they wouldn't leave home without and out of all that stuff came two really good suggestions 
for dog emergency care. Nicholas Mouse suggests we all take a look at an item called the Airlift by Fido Pro. It's an emergency dog rescue sling. When it's rigged correctly, it looks like your dog is a backpack. You know, shoulder straps and the whole thing. And boy, oh boy, I've been wondering about that kind of stuff. And you might want to think about it as well. What if your dog does get hurt way back there? How are you going to get him out? I know one guy who carried a 70-pound lab five miles out of the Chucker Hills. He'll never do it again. If you want to learn more about that product, go to phytoprotection.com. And then Matt Shively uh, reiterated something that I've been concerned with over the years, so much so that I put a video on, on an old website, and that is the gear you need to get your dog out of a conibear trap. If you haven't learned how to do that, go on YouTube and watch the videos and then carry the strap, the rope, or the tool, and I have all three, in your vest so that if your dog does get caught in one of those conibear, that's the kind that squeezes your throat. It's not the, you know, it's not the leg hold trap and it's not a snare. Uh, it's the kind that snaps closed with springs. So bring all the gear you need and practice releasing your dog from a conibear trap. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Nicholas, for your tips here in the Handle It segment. And now let's get back to the important stuff. From the Upland Almanac magazine, John Gosselin and Tom Carney, welcome back to the Upland Nation podcast. Did I, uh, did I, did I? Thank you. Oh, good. And you're both right there. Good. I'm glad I didn't scare anybody off. That's my biggest concern as a host, of course. Now, piss, <laughs> pissing them off, I don't care about, but scaring them off, uh, no. Um, not that you guys need another introduction, but uh, Tom is the editor and John is the publisher. And we've talked a little bit about the business side and a little bit about the literary side. But I want to ask each of you, uh, you've both been in this game for quite a while. Uh, when it comes to publishing a magazine about bird hunting and bird dogs and, and related stuff, um, conservation, et cetera, et cetera. What is the most gratifying part of it? Uh, John, why don't you start? Well, it kind of goes back to what I said before. Um, not just publishing quality material, uh, not just publishing st stuff that appeals to our reader, but seeing that presentation develop nurture and get better over time and i think uh, tom has a lot to do with that so i'm going to defer that one to tom uh that has to both be the most gratifying of it all so you in effect you're you're raising the bar is what you're telling me and 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 i agree uh you know mm -hmm. uh to, you know to, uh, except for some of the writers in there with the initials sl uh, i think that the the quality of the writing is just exemplary and, uh, and i'm not just doing that to suck up because i could use a couple more assignments tom but besides that <laughs> <laughs> besides that tom tell us what for you as a guy who in effect you're a guide not only for readers but for we writers who who are trying to craft work that will be worthy of your pages uh, what is it for you that trips your trigger it's 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 so funny scott it's as if we had planned this question and we didn't because i only literally a week ago thought of the answer huh. When I was explaining to a writer what my job is, for the longest time, I would just say, yeah, I'm a writer, and I, and I fix, this, fix the other writer's stuff. But I realized what the – literally, and I never told this to John either until just now. I, I, I realized that my role as an editor is similar to the director of a movie. The producers, you know, John and our, and our owner, Don Palachek, They've turned the project over to me, and they've given me very, you know, minimal uh, uh, rules. They're not even rules, but very. They 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 have turned the project over to me with very minimal uh, hands-on stuff, and they expect me to deliver the magazine according to my vision. And as I explained to the writer, I I said, 
and and your guys you guys are like the actors you bring your skills but you but you're but we're molding them with my vision for the magazine and and it really does go back to um doing the best we can to provide the best written word on whatever topic we're talking about trying to keep it lively Naked, or I shouldn't, whenever I have constructed criticism, I, I'm always telling them, look at what the reader is seeing. Here's why you have to change this. The reader will be confused. The reader will need more explanation. So it really is a combination of let's do the best writing we can, but we keep the reader in mind all the time. And, and I think that's basically what a director of a movie does. That's you know, a great analogy, Tom. Thank you. I, I mean, literally thought of it last week, John, when I was at my cabin, sitting in my recliner chair, <laughs> looking at the water. <laughs> I, I wish I'd have, th- I wish I'd have thought of it first, really. <laughs> it, it, you know, but it's so true, and and I know exactly what you're talking about because I've been on both sides of the desk as well, and 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 the challenge becomes uh, uh, kind of the the compromise in the middle there and and we've both been there Tom and J- John even you you've been a part of this whole thing from the very beginning there's a you know there's a there's a push and a pull a give and take between a writer and an editor and then and then poof then it ends up on the page and all of a sudden you get feedback from the really important person who's the folks who buy the magazine and and hopefully are entertained by it what? Oh, can I add? Can I add one more thing, Scott? Well, well, you're an editor, so I, I guess I should cut you a little <laughs> slack, even, even. The, the other part I forgot is: remember, I spent my main career as a teacher, where you would tell kids what how you wanted them to, as an English teacher. You tell kids how you want them to fix their writing, and they didn't care, so they wouldn't do it. Now I'm in the position where. If these guys care to get published, they have to fix it. <laughs> yeah, I love that, and and you're absolutely right. You know, you couldn't you couldn't withhold a paycheck from those students, could you? Yes. <laughs> yes it's, yeah, there's something to be said for capitalism, right there. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 parse out this making of a magazine thing. Uh, let's not go into the weeds too deep, but let's 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 take each side of this thing and just let, let's acquaint people who may not understand how it works with all the machinations of a magazine finally arriving in our mailbox so john give me some of the things in in sort of chronological order of, of how let's take an issue start at the beginning you're 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 roaming the aisles of the shot show or something and and you're going to start by trying to engage somebody, but go from there. Well, when we're at SHOT Show, uh, Scott, to be honest with you, we are there to primarily to talk to potential advertisers. So, you know, I mean, that would be, and that brings us down to one specific company. That does not necessarily launch the uh you know, the first step in, in launching a, uh, an issue. But when we're there, we're also looking for new products, new products that our readers might want to know about. And uh, Tom and I and James all spend time in the new product section of SHOT Show, and that's what we're doing. And when you're looking for Upland stuff, it kind of narrows it right down because that's just a small fraction of, what is uh, you know what is uh, displayed at Shot Show, but it's very specific to advertising and to our tailgate review department uh, is what influence is influenced most at Shot Show. So so you're uh, even if you're on the advertising side, if you will, um, you're you're constantly on the lookout for for stuff that that we would be as readers we would be interested in. Um, right. And then you've got a stable of folks who have agreed that they're going to advertise in the magazine. Do you go to Tom then with that and say, here's how many pages we have? Or uh, does Tom come to you and say, here's how many pages you have? How does that all work? I think it's the latter. Um, You know, what we have to do is we have to keep the percentage of advertising at, at at a certain point um so as not to be overly um 
so as not to overwhelm uh, the uh, the reader with ads. I mean, we don't want the Upland Almanac to read like the Yellow Pages. Remember the Yellow Pages? and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Or the Sears catalog. And... Um, <laughs> But, you know, so we have to strike that balance and editorial needs to exceed print advertising. So we see how much print advertising we have. And then Tom keeps in his quiver of arrows uh, the editorial that we can wrap around it and then some. And then I'm the guy that goes out and looks at the various artists' websites and chooses the cover. Oh, nice. I bet that's got to be fun in a lot of oh, ways. Oh, it is. It How, is. It is. You, um, because it's really, it's all always art for you guys. It's, uh, it's a painting of some type, isn't it? Yeah, we, we've never done photographs. Yeah. From day one, it's always been a reproduction of a painting. And just for fun, if you could narrow it down, I, I know it's like picking your favorite child if you had children, but how, who are some of your favorite artists to work with in, in that endeavor? Well, if, if our artists are listening, which I hope they are, if I don't include your name here, please don't take offense because there are many of them. Well, you can blame it on um, me. I'm asking to be concise. Yeah. Um, Ross B. Young is one of them. He's uh, here in Idaho. He, uh, he moved up from Missouri. He is um, uh, has a great, great variety of uh, art to choose from. Okay, I got the spring issue right in front of me. It's two springers. Hey, was that on purpose? <laughs> yeah, that, two yeah, springers you know, and, a, caught, and a rooster. You, you, caught, you caught right on there. That's one of Ross B. Young. Oh, it is. And then, okay. And then the summer issue, which I don't know if you've received yet, should have, um, is uh, something by another Idaho artist, just by sheer coincidence, uh, with the two Bob Whites on the fence, and his name is Dolan Lamson. Now, uh, oddly, we don't have Bob Whites here in Idaho, but he had the right painting. Tom, yeah. Tom, are you, do you ever get to the point where you're just done with an, an issue? Me? Yeah. <laughs> well, that I have to be because my wife Maureen is the associate editor, and just to dispel any notions, she's been that for I think ten years now, and and she earned the job. She had to test for it, and she does such a good job with it. But she always reads my column. Tail feathers. She always reads it last because I'm always changing it, always changing it. Yeah. So yeah. when she gets to the point, she goes, "All right, you're not changing this anymore. That's when the issue's done." <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I remember the same thing, pestering writers and writers. And now, as a writer, I do the same thing. You know, if there's no deadline, I'll never finish a piece, let alone a whole publication. You're absolutely oh, yeah. right. Uh, so what about you, Tom? How do you choose the stories that get in? Well, you know, there's, as with any magazine, there's two basic ways. People query stories and, um, and you assign them. And oftentimes it'll be stories that are, um, uh, well, related to the season. For example, we've got two stories coming up uh, for the autumn issue that are about hunting out west and they then they take place in September so I'd like to put those in there you know so they'd be a September issue then we have a quail hunting story which takes place later in the year so that can go in the winter issue along with a nice story about something that people might think it's not you know think about this as a Christmas gift but it's the kind of thing that lends itself to a winter one then what we winter issue then the spring issue comes out in january and we've tried to make that one include a a destination piece about uh well a destination piece about anywhere uh, a foreign country if we can or some special place in the u.s but we, we try to get a travel story into that one nice so you know a lot of it is 
is the luck of the draw, what people are asking you to submit and what people are submitting, and then, um, you know, the, the uh, calendar itself. So you got to plan, but you got to be flexible as well. And one of the things that uh, shows how how flexible you are is by uh, you know whatever comes in. What is the biggest challenge when you're editing folks like me or folks who are even more qualified than me? What what do you find yourself doing the most of with our work? That that's so simple because I have I have developed a rule and. I've given you know uh, craft improvement speeches on it, and it and to make it very brief, it's eliminate the word I. <laughs> yeah, and, I, mean, I can I I mean I literally have a mathematical formula for it that has worked all the time, and I won't bore your listeners with that, but basically I tell people, um, you know, they're not buying the Joe Smith went hunting magazine they're buying the upland almanac you know if, if you're writing a story about you know kansas quail focus on kansas quail not i went hunting and i saw the quail and i watched my dog do this and i do that more than anything is to show people well and it goes back to like you said me my being a guide and my my career as a teacher i end up showing people how they can say the same thing without mentioning themselves and the writing gets better you know and that is a that is a lesson that anybody writing for anything ought to remember uh it i know it's almost a cliche there's no i in team but but the the fact of the matter is whether you're writing for a blog or you're writing for your own personal journal or anything else it seems to make a lot of sense to to especially to the reader so you've you've hit on that and i appreciate that thank you for everybody who ever reads anything <laughs> that's that's most welcome well we're yeah but remember i had to read it first. oh god yeah <laughs> yeah oh man <laughs> have you I, okay now we're getting into the weeds but i gotta ask you i gotta get off my chest now because we've both been there and done that tom carney the editor of Up, upland almanac magazine have you ever gotten anything so bad so rancid so stinky so objectionable that you just said please don't call me i'll call you Oh, I said worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say, that happens rather often, doesn't it, Tom? <laughs> Wait a minute. No, it's not, not coming from this email address, is it? <laughs> no, no. I do remember uh, one of the, one of the, um, one of the first things I did when I came aboard in 2008 was I revised the contributor guidelines. And I said, there's three types of stories. Don't even bother asking about submitting them. Yeah. One of them, and one of them's a dead dog story. And some guy wrote in, he said, ah, oh, this is really a good one and everything. He did, he did three things wrong. Number one, he wasn't a good writer and he tried to write with a, he tried to have the person speaking with a, a German uh, dialect, like, you know, English, like as yeah, a I... German speaker. And, and, and unless you're a, really good you shouldn't write dialect number two it was a dead dog story and number three the story was um <laughs> the story was goofy so i got to the end of the story and i thought and where the dog died is that eh. I read them the riot act and I never heard from him again. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one way to do it. Uh, yeah, the, the, he'll never call you. <laughs> no, no, but most of the most of the time, like, I'm I, somehow I've developed the the ability to um, to analyze guys' stories, and and rarely, rarely will will you get the traditional. I'm sorry, there's no room in our magazine for this. Best luck with it elsewhere. Most of the time, I give guys, I take like an hour writing a letter on why the story isn't, won't work, and what you might want to pay attention to to make it better. And we've gotten a lot of stories, you know, resubmitted based on, on those, uh, based on the, uh, it's not a critique as much as a suggestion sheet that I've given the writers. That's well, kind of fun. Yeah, and, and every, I, th I hope everybody appreciates that because we can all get better at it and 
final question for you, Tom, before we start wrapping things up. There is still room in this world for people who may not be, quote, professional, unquote, writers in a magazine if they'll do those things that we've been talking around and talking about. Uh, isn't, isn't there? Yeah, and, this go, and, and I'll give you something else I've thought about for a long time since I was a, a part, well, since I was teaching full time. You know, professionalism is an attitude. And and um, guys like like I mentioned, uh, Jerry Dennis, Tom Hugler, and Bob Demott, they're you know professional in all all aspects of the word. But I give them suggestions for fixing their stuff. I remember one time Jerry Dennis wrote in something, and I said, "Wait, this one word wants to be this word." He said, "You're right." Yeah. And then you get you get stuff from other people, and they say, you know. Oh, you can't change a word of what I wrote or they get all upset. That's why I say it's a, professionalism is an attitude. You want to craft it. You want to work at it. And I'm sorry I'm talking so much, but you kind of tapped into a passion I have. Well, you and can work at it. Yeah, you can if you're willing to. Um, and that's the key. And, and I've heard that time and time again. I just read an interview with Michael Douglas, who pretty much said his father, Kirk Douglas, told him the same thing do it as well as you possibly can uh and and that means to me at least uh you know being introspective uh taking a a a a a far a longer view of it and then being um you know a bit self-critical i hope that's not john being blown away like dorothy in the wizard of oz no, no, I'm indoors. I'm just I'm sitting not, here. I'm just sitting here listening to Tom talk. Okay. Well, <laughs> maybe outside with one of the dogs oh. enjoying the, the weather. I so, love it. You know what? I, I literally five minutes before we started talking, they wrote back to, to one of our regular writers who said he was having difficulty with something, and I said, "Just do the best you can, and we'll make it work." Yeah. And, and we've all had editors who wouldn't give a rip about that. They'd just take it and throw it away. Um, yeah. So, so John, if you were going to leave our uh, listeners with a bit of advice, what would you want to tell potential and existing readers of Upland Almanac that you don't really get the chance to get off your chest very often? Um, you asked me about which, which type of, you know, for a random listing of artists, which I wasn't prepared for because, you know, it just all becomes a blur after a while. Yep. Um, and while Tom's been talking about editorial, um, I've been assembling a list for you. John, what other sporting artists would be worth our taking a look at that you've featured on the cover of Upland Almanac? Well, I'm going to give you just a partial list, Scott, because there really have been many, many very gifted artists over the years. Um, Brett James Smith, who is probably the most prolific artist in this genre out there, has contributed to many, many of our covers. Uh, then you have the old classic guys, the, the Terry Redlands and the David Mosses uh, of, of the world. They've contributed to our covers in the past. There's a guy out there, you might know him, maybe our audience does, maybe they don't, but his name literally is Bob White. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, he has submitted to us. And he's painted a few of those, yeah. Well, yeah, it's usually other matter, though. Yeah. Um, uh, a woman out of New Hampshire, Christine Combs, has uh, republished a couple of her covers. And then in uh, and this, was, this one was Tom's idea. Uh, in the winter issue of 2020, we did something that we hadn't done for a very long time, and that is a um, uh, um, pencil and ink sketch, which is honestly black and white photo quality and is by a man named Mr. Bill Harrison and it's, uh, it shows a Brittany holding a woodcock in its mouth and I swear and you look at it and you say no, no way anyone could have drawn anything with that intricacy and it is a drawing. 
he's just a we'll be doing more of him again uh sooner or later well keep your eyes peeled for all of that and more upland almanac is the magazine this is the upland nation podcast uh on one speaker is john goslin the publisher on the other speaker is tom carney the editor guys we got to do this on a regular basis i've had more fun talking to you than well than actually probably seeing both of your ugly mugs at the shot show or something like that so thank thank you for putting putting up with all of this uh keep up the good work uh and uh, looking forward to actually getting back and actually spending quality time in the same building with you both down the road thanks for being a part of the upland nation podcast thanks very much scott oh boy yeah, we could go on and on and on. Uh, but uh, I'm afraid I might go too deep into the weeds, and then one of them would go down a rabbit hole, and that would be that, and we'd all be in trouble after that. So we'll carry on right here. Uh, after a quick break, uh, we'll take This Land is Your Land and find some public access Bob Whites, not the painter, the birdie, but first, a quick word from HappyJackInc.com. Happy Jack is that place I go to for all sorts of dog care remedies. Manning and Joe Exum and their crew have developed all sorts of things over the years. Tried and true, field tested. Right now I'm pretty high on their Flex Enhance Plus for Flick and his joint health as he begins to well, going to what I'll call canine middle age. Flex Enhance Plus has glucosamine and creatine, and both of those things are integral to healthy joints. The glucosamine helps keep those joints lubricated. The creatine builds muscle strength to support those joints. Learn more about all the products they have at happyjackinc.com. This Land is Your Land is brought to you by FindBirdHuntingSpots.com. New material every week to help you find places to hunt. There's a new essay in there, kind of the first part of an essay, kind of the, the history of the ringneck pheasant, as far as we're concerned, from the good old days, I mean really old, to now. Learn something every week at FindBirdHuntingSpots.com, including... Where to find public access Bob Whites? Well, there's only really one place where you have a good chance at those. Uh, so unless you've got the bucks to go to one of those fancy plantations, ride in a mule-drawn wagon, go to Georgia, the Peachtree State. How many streets in that? Well, how many streets in Atlanta have that name? Man, I'll tell you, the last time I was there, we got lost four and five times over thanks to that. But anyway... Georgia does have some good population growth taking place. The rain is coming at the right time the last couple years, and the dry weather and the mild winters have all contributed to a good recruitment in wild bobwhites. Start in southwest Georgia, look at the Red Hills and Albany. In the upper coastal plain, try Burke and Lawrence counties. All of those places have great wildlife management area access. In fact, they have a very useful map. If you go to georgiawildlife.com, then slash um, public access, you'll find a great map. You can look to those counties and then find those wildlife management areas. It's all at georgiawildlife.com, then start poking around. If you're looking for public access bobwhites. And on that note, yep, you put up with me long enough. I hope you enjoyed our talk. Thank you, Tom Carney. Thank you, John Gosselin, both of Upland Almanac, the magazine. Follow them on social. Head on over to uplandalmanac.com and learn more and hopefully subscribe. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends and please subscribe, rate, or review us. Thank you, Jay Refi UDDC, for your recent favorable review. Appreciate that a lot. 
The conversation never ends at the Wing Shooting USA and Upland Nation Facebook pages. I'll see you there. And in the meanwhile, I'll leave you with a, well, kind of a dad joke in our world. Why aren't bird dogs good dancers? Well, of course, they have two left feet. Thanks again for listening. I'm Scott Linden. See you in the field.